You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, it is uh, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I'm now going to ask you for a relatively detailed description of how your Thanksgiving weekend went, uh, because I know that we're not recording this before and doing some kind of weird, weird, timey-wimey magic thing. So how was no, your No, we definitely, there's no time travel involved here at all. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Thanksgiving was at my, uh, my husband, husband's aunt's house, um, and I brought the devil's mashed potatoes as one does, um, yeah. and some, some roasted garlic green beans and, uh, we all ate too much and then, and I, then came home. And I have yeah. the, I have the devil's mashed potatoes recipe in my little recipe thing from years mm-hmm. ago when you shared it. Uh, yeah. I think it's too much for one person. Um, yes, it's probably, it's probably excessive for, for one human being would not recommend. Yeah, I mean, that would be a lot of potato pancakes. For the next and and yeah yeah I mean you could use it as like a base for like a pureed potato soup sort of thing I guess if you wanted to um, I actually no. have leftover devil's mash today that is literally being turned into a potato soup upstairs so can speak from experience have you have you ever heard of the thing where uh, you eat a raw potato to soak up the alcohol in your system what so that reaction is a definite no I have not heard that. Um, this is the thing. This is, uh, is this some weird Kentucky thing from your. From your <laughs> it is definitely. Case. I think it is definitely a Southern thing because I remember uh, it was in the uh, uh, the documentary or not the documentary, but like the docu series kind of thing. Uh, okay. Uh, about George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Uh, okay. All when right. She first meets him. He's he's chewing on a potato because someone told him that if he chews on the potato and it's like the potato soaks up the alcohol in his stomach and sobers him up. I feel like we have a good guest on to verify whether or not this has authentic <laughs> Southern Appalachian legs to it as a theory. Alex Bledsoe, can you confirm or deny this bullshit? I have never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and as as someone who, you know, was in the South and drank a great deal, I can say that the thought of that makes me kind of queasy even now. Oh, God, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even sober, a raw potato hitting your stomach to say nothing of once everything else is kicking down there. Oh, man. Next time you're going to tell me that, that that that's the cure from a lord, right? You're going to come full circle here and just add the Chicago angle to it as well. Uh, Actually, Tracy, the Chicago gotta... angle would be you do the malort, like you do a shot of malort, and then you try to eat a bunch of pierogi to, to <laughs> absorb that. That would be the Chicago I got, angle. I got, a, I got an email from Todd, and Todd said that there is no cure for malort, so... Oh, just, okay. Well, I mean, he would know. So, yeah. <laughs> Alex, it's really good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again, Tracy, and nice to meet you. Yeah, Hello. it has been it's been a minute since you. I mean, we're not in the same space right now because technology. But like the last time we were in the same space as one another was also the first time we met. We we yeah. crossed over for just one night of a writer's retreat as you were leaving and I was arriving. And I remember sitting on the floor in a hallway talking to you and Martha Wells. Um, yeah, yeah. Petting, petting the critter and uh, and having a, a a fairly good time of it. All things yeah. both of you were were just about to pack your way out. I remember that too. 
And it is it has been a little while. You've been busy, been a lot of books and things and, and work happening since then. And most recently, give the people what they want and That's other right. stories with sharp whip, cunning women and wild magic, which is especially interesting to us because we are big audio fiction nerds and this is an audio only release. So this right. is audible. No, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So I I I want to kind of get into like how did we arrive at this being an audio only release project? Like what's the is there is there a revealable story from behind the scenes oh, yeah. there? Oh yeah. Um all of my previous audiobooks had been done had been read by Stefan Rudnicki and I was really that happy guy. With him. Uh, yeah. That guy really? Uh. Patrick. No, I'm kidding. I've met him at cons. He's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I and I've like I said, I've been really happy with his um with his work. And we've, you know, gotten to be friends over the years because I guess we've been working together about 15 years now. Yeah. And it was actually his idea. He just contacted me one day and said, Do I have any short pieces that we could do an audio collection around? And I'm like, Yeah, I got some short pieces. Because I've been <laughs> writing. Got a sec. My my first short story was published in '96, so I got a few, <laughs> and in fact, this collection has that story in it. So we put together, you know, a collection that seemed to flow pretty well, and then the uh, the story give the people what they want kind of lended itself to the title, and it all came together really fast. I mean, I would say between him contacting me and the the thing coming out on Halloween was no more than three months. Yeah, that is really because, quick. And it's, you know, and it was because really everything was written. It was just mm-hmm. a matter of packaging it and sending it to him. And so I was, I was real happy with that. It's very flattering to have somebody come up to you and say, Hey, have you got anything? We'd like to release that. That's uh that's so much the opposite of what a writer's <laughs> life usually <laughs> exactly. is. It's like, you like, please, Take the thing. Would you? I have a thing. Would you like to take it? And yeah, that that is a wonderful reversal. Yeah, I, and he, you know, he went through the stories, and there's one that needed a female voice, so he brought in somebody else to read that part of that story. So you experiment with like so many different things and try out different things to make sure you know how to do it, like you were saying before, and so. Did you, did you ever surprise yourself with trying out a, a type of a story and then realize like, wait, I, I can do this and this is fun and I want to do this? Yeah. Well, the novella concludes with a or the audiobook concludes with a zombie novella. And I've been a zombie fan since I saw Night of the Living Dead on TV back in the late 70s. Right. Yeah. On a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Which actually, when when I went to college, I found out there was probably about 25 people at my college that had all seen and been traumatized by that same broadcast. Oh, it's cute bonding. So, Except, you know, gross, too. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to write a zombie story, but I could never think of anything that wasn't so similar to the vast amount of zombie stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You know, zombies don't have personalities, so there's a very specific things you can do with them and make them work. And, but finally, finally I had an idea that I had not seen anybody else do. So I used that and I wrote it and I'm, I'm really happy with it. 
I, yeah. I think it's really good. I think it might be one of the best things I've done, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and covers his head to wait for the blocks to fall on him. But no, it's I'm I'm really happy with it. And I'm really happy that Stefan is the one reading it because mm-hmm. it's never been published anywhere. And if you're really looking for something substantially new by me, that would be the thing to do. That's or a great to, anchor. To check out, yeah. I should say. Yeah. So that's fantastic. It's nice. It sounds like it's got a great debut in, in Stefan being the narrator. I think so. I think so. And then in, in his only moment of probably questionable judgment, he asked me if I would read the introduction. (laughs) Oh, so if you hear this kind of, you know, nasal Southern drawling whine at the beginning it's and someone a, just did it, you wrong in their audio It's not editing. a technical no. error. It's me actually <laughs> reading the introduction. <laughs> I think, though, there's real, like, I, I understand there's lots of reasons why authors aren't necessarily the lead reader on their own books, and, and that makes sense. But I think there's something really great about getting to hear the voice of the author somewhere in the course of things. Like, it, it, it's another mechanism we have for humanizing them. So I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, they seem to like it and I haven't had anybody mention that it sucks yet. So that's a good oh, sign. Good. Yeah. Yeah. At minimum, your fans are polite and that's yes. like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, somewhere in the South, someone's going, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh no. <laughs> many people are saying, have said that about me many times. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember that when you saw an author's name on something, they might as well have lived in Olympus because there was no way to contact them. There yeah. was no oh, way yeah. to find out what they looked like. Mm-hmm. You you might get lucky if you wrote to the publisher mm-hmm. and asked them to forward it to the author, but you know, there there was just you know they were non entities to you. They were just these wonderful people that produced this stuff. And now, of course. Everybody knows everything about everybody. Yeah. I, I Everyone remember. follows Neil Gaiman on Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember flipping through a paperback and and seeing uh like if you'd like to send the author a letter, you know, P.O. box, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I, I talk about this. There was a um there was a gap in my reading uh when I was living in California because my family felt like I needed to grow up <laughs> and they felt like my, the things that I was reading were not the things that, a, that an adult should read. It's that space shit. Like it's the kid shit. And so there was a little gap. And then when I started traveling for my job, uh, I was running through the airport in Atlanta and I grabbed a book off a, off of a pile in a bookstore and bought it and it had a dragon on the cover and I, I read it and I was like, why did I stop reading this stuff? This stuff is awesome. And then I really wanted to read more from that author. And it was uh, Dennis L. McKiernan. And I couldn't find any more books. And so I was looking through there and there was there was like the write a letter to the author kind of thing. And so I wrote a letter to him going, I want more of your books. You list all these books and I can't find them anywhere. Like what's going on? And he actually replied. And he oh, sent wow. me a letter back and he said, well, <laughs> they're out of print. I'm trying to get them back into print. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm so happy that you're enthusiastic about it, you know, and just watch for them because I'm trying to get them back in print. And now to your point, we're Facebook friends. Yeah. Huh. You know, yeah. 20, 20 some odd years later, uh, he's on Facebook and I'm on Facebook and we're Facebook friends. But yeah, like back in the day, 
you you do just couldn't you know jump on Twitter and say hello to somebody. Yeah, I the first letter I wrote to an author, I was maybe eight. And it was a guy who wrote a book on dinosaurs named Roy Chapman Andrews, who you might know is one of the models for Indiana Jones. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. And, you know, he had written this kid book about dinosaurs. He was the first um, paleontologist to find dinosaur eggs in Mongolia. Hmm. And, you know, I wrote him care of the Museum of Natural History in New York. And the letter came back marked deceased. Because he had died like 25 years earlier. Oh, no. But again, how no. would you know? Yeah. That, you wouldn't. that story took a twist. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like that. <laughs> so let's, let's see if we can turn this thing around a little. I want, if, like, no, seriously. <laughs> I, I am thinking a lot about, you know, the, the way for me, I – went from being a lifelong fan of reading genre fiction and debating genre fiction with my friends and all that sort of stuff uh, to becoming a teacher of it. And then eventually uh, going to cons as, as a writer of it and myself sort of looking around going like, hello, pay attention to me. I'm trying to be relevant. Um, And also feeling this kind of shakeup, like you were describing Alex of that, that Olympus feeling where I'm like, Oh my God, I just walked past John Scalzi. John Scalzi's molecules were within a certain number of yards of my own. Um, and you know, and fill in other names here. Like there were my, my first like really kind of author centered, um, con that I went to was, um, I, I went to the nebulas and the last year that they were in Chicago, which was like 2016, I want to say. So it's been a while ago. Um, and this was just absolutely mind blowing experience for me of like all these writer people around who were doing things like eating food and and drinking stuff and having mouths out of which sounds came. Um, and, and, you know, that was a whole grown ass adult having this kind of woe experience about it. Um, so I, I, I want to know for you, like on the writer end of things, do you have any particular kind of, um, heartwarming or memorable moments of someone connecting with you because of your writing where you're like, Whoa, Oh, I, I exist to you in this way. Um, the first con I went to, because I had not grown up going to conventions, kind of like you, Patrick, my parents thought, well, it's time for you to outgrow some of this stuff. I know star Wars is popular, (laughs) but in 10 years, nobody's going to remember it. Yep. And the first con I went to was WISCON in Madison, which is a a feminist science fiction convention. And this was in the early 2000s. And I go, and the very first panel I go to, you know, I've never been to a con panel before. I sit down and I look next to me and in the chair next to me in the audience is Jane Yolen. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I mean, suddenly I am just stiff as a board and cannot I, I can't turn. I can't speak. You know, I, I don't even know what to say. Do I, is it polite to acknowledge that I, I, I know who you are and I've read a bunch of your books or, you know, cause I don't know con etiquette at that point, but that was, that was pretty intense. And I <laughs> keep going. <laughs> no, it's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. What, no, what I, I was just going to say, uh, uh, Donardo's like you. Tracy and that like, mm, whenever okay. we would go to a con together, he would, he would recognize every single author mm-hmm. and he would lose his mind. 
like, like a dog oh my god. meeting other oh my dogs god. with dog that's such a, oh my god that's such a, oh my god that's such, and i'm like okay do you want to go over and talk to them and he would be like are you insane right now like we can't just go over and talk to them <laughs> faces like animals and, and, and he, he kind of got out of that. I got him. I broke him out of that a little bit and, and, oh, good. and stuff, yeah. but I still freak out. Um, I had, I, I wrote a short story that it, it honestly, it's like it, I feel like it's a throwaway short story cause I didn't get paid for it, but it appeared in an anthology and it was one of those deals where it's like, well, you get to be in the anthology. That's your pay. And, uh, didn't think anything more about it. And then I'm at Worldcon and I'm on a panel at like a year, two years later, whatever. And someone walks up after the panel and I'm talking to someone else on the panel and I turn and look and here's this lady and she, and she's holding that fucking throwaway anthology that I never thought I would ever see again. And she's like, well, you sign this. (laughs) You want to talk about your imposter syndrome moment? It's like, I'm sorry, (laughs) there's someone behind me. Like, who are you? (laughs) Who are you talking to me? No way. This one um, right here. I also had, I had a moment at Mile High Con many, many years ago where I was on a, I was a moderator on a panel and they gave you the author list. And one of the authors on the panel, it said C. Willis. Mm. I'm like, nah. <laughs> slowly, <laughs> that, slowly. That, the that can't drops. be. That can't be. Yeah. And so I look and I'm looking and on the, on the guest list, there's two, there's two C. Willis's. Yeah. Cause there's yeah. Connie and Courtney. And, uh, mm-hmm. Courtney, is that his name? I forget. I don't and, know. And uh, I'm like, I go to programming. I'm like, this isn't Connie, right? This is, this is, and they're like, no, no, that's Connie. No, I can't moderate Connie <laughs> Willis on a panel. It turns mm-hmm. out she's delightful. Like she's, right. she's the best person to ever talk to about anything ever she is hilarious mm-hmm. and she's a lot of fun but at the moment like i'm losing my shit <laughs> because i have a panel where i'm moderating connie willis yeah yeah absolutely i'll, t- I'll tell you the best con related story that i've got i was at a con in halifax nova scotia and i was in the green room and there were some notable people there john reese davies was there Renee oh, well. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas Briggs, who, if you're a f- fan of Doctor Exterminate. Who, yes. Exterminate. He does the voice <laughs> of the Daleks. And I guess Jake, my my son, was probably 10. He was he was pretty young. And but he was a huge Doctor Who fan. So I got Nicholas Briggs to record like a little 15 second video to Jake. Oh wow. You know, just just saying, hi, Jake, you know, and, you know, I'm the voice of the Daleks. And then he did a little Dalek voice. And and I sent that to Jake and he was at his grandparents house and they told me that he watched it and all he could do was grin for about two hours. (laughs) Oh, that might have been the last time he thought I was cool. I mean, if you're gonna put a pin on on this is this was the the apotheosis of dad being cool. That's not a bad one. You got to go out on top. Yeah. yeah, he he went to a lot of conventions with me, and I think he he kind of got spoiled to the you know the fact that I you know as a as a speaker at the convention I had access to everything and I could go mm-hmm. everywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. It's like not the every whole, convention experience no, is like that. No. So. <laughs> you can't just like go into a room and people will just give you snacks necessarily. Yeah. yeah. yeah it doesn't really work like that. Yeah. So, I mean, in I, a lot I, of ways, I think, I'm sorry, Tracy, but I think the point no, is that, that I like, I, I think, I think we all, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we all still get that way at conventions. Like, I still yeah. get that way. Yeah. 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 I kind of love the fact that people all over the spectrum of achievement experience involvement in the in the industry and the genres and whatnot. I kind of love the fact that we're all a little bit in that space still. It would worry me um, if if I or somebody I knew had just like it all just washed off our backs at this point. I don't know. I think I think some amount of whiz bang. Oh, my gosh. is healthy. Like we got to hang on to that. And I think, I, I, I think I, us as writers, especially, we know how hard it is to do it as well as some of those people do. For so sure. So when yeah. we meet them, we're we have that little extra frisson of awe that comes with right. knowing how hard their job is. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I, 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 so I live in Denver. Mile High Con is my home con. I haven't been there for a couple of years because grief and shit. But um, whenever I would go. I would always walk up and introduce myself to Carrie Vaughn. I would say, hi, Carrie, mm-hmm. you know, Patrick and Bob. And she got to the point where she's like, I remember you. You don't have <laughs> to introduce this. yourself every single time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that does not connect in my brain because why the hell would Carrie Vaughn remember me? <laughs> yeah. It's like I have to because it's like uh, – it's just it's just the thing in my brain. It's like I have to every single time because there's no way in hell she's going to remember me. Yeah. <laughs> there's no <Yeah>. way. <laughs> I think also as writers, we recognize how, you know, you make a great point, Alex, about the difficulty of the craft it, as, as an experience. We can look at people who are successful in the genre and whose work we really admire and we have this whole other level of appreciation because we've, we've been – in the work of that, um, struggling to get wherever we are ourselves. But I think also there's a certain amount of respect for the ability to acquire an audience, right? Like looking at other people and looking at, at their, their fandoms and the excitement people have for their work and the loyalty people have for their work and feeling like that too is really difficult to cultivate. Like yeah. it's, it's somewhere in between kismet and miracle and then a lot of work that goes into kind of keeping it alive um and actually i'm thinking about that in part because since you're you've got this audio anthology of short work many of the stories that are in it are connected to some of your your series you know the eddie right. Moss and the tufa and, and and recurring characters and things and so i'm kind of wondering for you, when you're when you're given this, Stefan approaches you, and you have this cool opportunity to do this thing. Um, how much of this in your mind was sort of like service to the fans that you already had versus an opportunity to kind of gather in new people? Well, I definitely did want to give you know the fans of these different you know series something that they might not have had before. You know, a, a place where stories that had appeared at different in different magazines and different you know online sites were collected mm-hmm. and so yeah that was that was definitely a, a deliberate choice and luckily since Stefan had read 
all the stuff for, you know, the audiobooks. He was f- as familiar with it as I was and could kind of help me figure out which ple- which pieces were good for this and which ones weren't. Because <laughs> believe it or not, sometimes you don't write as well as you do at other times. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard. No, no, no writing. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, I wanted to be able to say, hey, if you like the Tufa series, there's something on here for you. If you like the Eddie Lacrosse books, there's something on here for you. And there's other stuff that you might come to like Mm -hmm. that might, you know, pique your interest in in a series you hadn't read before. Because the the series are pretty wide apart in their readership. Yeah, know, the, yeah, the topics are different, and the atmosphere is different, and and really the thought processes that I use are completely different. So somebody who likes one might not have might have seen the other and thought, oh, I don't know if I want to try that. Yeah, yeah. But this way they can kind of sample it and see if it is something they might like. So that I mean, in that sense, you're kind of trying to thread the needle between I want to speak to the people who already know this work, and I want to kind of like kind of start a new dialogue with people who they're coming here for whatever reason they're coming here. They're checking this thing out for whatever reason. I want to see like, what can I give them? That's going to kind of get their hooks into them. Yeah, Um, exactly. Exactly. And I think anthology for you is a really great tool as well, because like you said, you've, you've worked principally in fantasy um, with sort of like horror elements to it as well for a really long time. But I think, how to put this? I don't know. I think it's it's easier for some other authors to put your finger down and to say, like, here's the brand of this person, right? Here's what a story from them is. It's always going to look like this. It's always going to sort of have these ingredients to it. And I think that, like you described as being more spread out. And I'm kind of curious about that as part of your – is that just part of how you keep yourself interested in your own work? Kind of having these very different voices and takes and settings and vibes and – well, yeah, that's that's part of it. And part of it is, you know, as as a writer, you kind of get, uh, I guess, arrogant is probably the right word, but you think I can write anything. And the only way to prove that is to actually write it. Right. And I no longer think that I have found things that I cannot write or at least not write well. Mm-hmm. But in the experience. In the experimenting, I have learned things that I'm able to bring back to these, you know, other things that I I do write that people like. And hopefully that's what keeps those things fresh. That's what keeps them from sounding like anybody else. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's always that's always the danger of, of getting too insular. You know, when you when you only write one thing and when you only read one thing, you be you have this very narrow range of influences and after a while they run out. But if you allow yourself to try other things, if you allow yourself to read different genres, if you try to write different genres, you learn things that you can then bring to what you're working on that maybe nobody else has ever thought of bringing into fantasy or horror. And I find that both keeps me and whatever I write, at least from getting too stale. Yeah. So do you mind if I ask in your in your experimentation, what have you discovered to be the Alex Bledsoe kryptonite? (laughs) Paranormal romance. Okay. I'm assuming not because of the paranormal part or. No, the paranormal part's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know. 
part of it is my own life experience with romance not really lending itself to the the tropes of the genre. Part of it is because the kind of romance I like to read about and and watch and things like that are well basically like a Howard Hawks romance, like The Big Sleep or okay. To Have or Have Not, you know, where the man and the woman or what whoever the two partners are, they click instantly and they feel each other out verbally to see if the other person can keep up. Okay. Yeah. And that doesn't lend itself to paranormal romance very well. So 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 you're not interested in, in like a thousand year old immortal being interested in a fourteen year old? Uh no. In fact, no, that's I, hard to know. Yeah, going to have to pass I, uh, on that one. <laughs> I, when the first Twilight movie came out, my wife wanted to watch it, so we did, and I have never felt less like the target audience for anything in my life. <laughs> I am still Twilight free. I have never mm-hmm. consumed a second of any of that. <laughs> it speaks to somebody, obviously. I yeah. know it does, but I just, yeah, no. I, I just don't know why. I just don't get what it is. If, you know, if you could get it, if you could bottle it, then every writer would be doing it. Mm-hmm. But there's just no way to distill it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because I um, I teach at a high school, which means I spend a lot of my time around um, high school aged people. And when I'm teaching uh, my creative writing and my speculative fiction classes in particular, we naturally end up talking about people's reading habits as well as their their writing inclinations. And it's always been really interesting to me to talk to teenage girls who read um, YA paranormals or things like that that have, um, or YA fantasy that have, you know, certain of the tropes that we've come to associate with those things like the uh, obligatory love triangle or, or so on. Um, it's always been really interesting for me to have conversations with them because I think the assumption is that they are not savvy as consumers, that they're they're being fed these tropes over and over again, and that they don't even realize that they're being fed some variations on a theme or some variations on a treatment over and over. They do. They know it. Um, in fact, yeah. it's it's part of their sort of shopping habits, as it were, um, that in fact, part of the pleasure they get is critiquing how the trope was executed. And like they are fully aware that the tropes exist. They they recognize the weaknesses of those tropes and they they have a sort of connoisseur's palette, as it were, for like this is when the trope works and when it's satisfying and when you manage to make it interesting, it's going to do these things. And when it's not, it's going to do these things over here. Um and they're just really interesting conversations to be a fly on the wall for because I think they they definitely help you reconfigure um, some of the worst expectations that and, and assumptions that people have made about them as a reading audience. Yeah. Well, I'm sure as as a parent of, of a teenager, mm-hmm. you've had that discussion with them about what they're reading. And once you can get past them saying something like, I don't know, books. You can get really interesting conversations out of them because they, they're not idiots. And mm-hmm. the marketing people that think they're idiots are idiots themselves because these kids know what they like. Mm-hmm. You know, we should all be, be able to go back to being that clear about this is what I like and what I want in mm-hmm. my reading. Yeah. Because yeah. when we get to be, you know, like my age, we don't know anymore. 
You know, mm-hmm. we 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 are too aware of how things are marketed, how things are presented to us. We don't trust the process anymore. We don't trust our own judgment because what happens if we decide we like something that's, you know, been critically savaged? What does that right. say about us? And yeah. teenagers don't have that problem. In fact, they would they would just laugh if we said, well, the critics really didn't like that. You know, they wouldn't care. And I, I miss that kind of uh, that kind of openness. I wish I could hang on to it. Yeah, I think it's uh, they they're definitely they exist in this very emotionally fragile space where they are sort of afraid of judgment, but it is not particularly the judgment of of whatever those apparatuses are, like the apparatuses of criticism. That's not the judgment that they're worried about. Not not particularly. Um, no. Yeah, my my son's 16 and he's uh, been going through, I won't call it a phase because that sounds dismissive, um, but I get, well, fine. For efficiency's sake, I'll call it a phase. Um, But he's been going through through a phase recently where he's been watching a lot of films from well before he was born um, based on kind of their reputation and him getting a sense from the interwebs that these are things that he should be watching. So he's been watching a lot of John Carpenter movies and... um, He's been wanting to watch a lot of um, James Cameron stuff and Ridley Scott and things like that. So like horror action adjacent pieces. And um, what's been really interesting is having conversations with him about it and realizing that it's not even that he particularly likes horror or that he's particularly looking for that as the modality. It's that he likes narrative economy. And that there's particular things that all of these films are doing in terms of what characters are choosing to do and how the plot develops and this and that and the other thing that are very economical. And he's aware of that and he's sensitive to it. He doesn't he likes to like not have waste on the carcass of a movie. Um, He doesn't have a lot of patience for a movie that's two hours and 30 minutes simply because it can be, you know, he's much more impressed by like something that came out. 30 or 40 years ago, that's an hour and 30 and packs a punch. Um, and well, John Carpenter is, about that given a chance. John Carpenter is definitely his guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's not an ounce of fat on his movies. Right. Meanwhile, right. Ridley Scott. <laughs> yes. Um, I think he appreciates Ridley Scott more when Ridley Scott is a director and less when Ridley Scott is, is given more creative freedom. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I haven't tried. I, yeah. I, I, I'm just curious. I'm, I, I'd be curious to see uh, Corwin's reaction to Zack Snyder's uh, Star Wars film that's not a Star Wars film that's coming out on Netflix. Uh, it has a title, I assume. Rebel Moon. Oh, okay. All right. Um, then, I, then I guess we'll keep an eye out for it. Um, this is this he, is a this is the movie that uh, was pitched and it was actually greenlit and they were going to mm-hmm. make it. It was a Star Wars movie, and mm-hmm. then with all the stuff that's happened in and all the projects that they've dropped, this was one of the ones that yeah. dropped. But he had done so much work on it that he decided to make it anyway. I'm just going to file the serial numbers off. And- yeah, and it, it's <laughs> and, and, I mean even to the point where like in the trailer, someone has like laser swords. Uh, yeah. that they're fighting with. But um, yeah, it's just, you know, but uh, the reason I bring it up is because it, the part one is, is like almost three hours long, I think. Or something. Oh God. So it's like, oh, a that's really part dense. one. That's part one. Part one. Yeah. Yeah. I sat through his uh, justice league, the full four hour one. I'm so and sorry. Yeah. 
that and it was strictly just to get my geek card stamped was to, yeah. to be able to say <laughs> I, I, I had seen that. it. Yes. Yep. And oh, if he had been standing in front of me when I finished <laughs> that movie, he would have no teeth <laughs> because it was so drawn out and so it was so obvious. Yeah. Every plot beat was obvious. If you're going to do four hours of something, put some surprises in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Never going to get them four hours back, are you? No, no. Yeah. I'm going to collect some teeth in payment, though. <laughs> so. Zach, Zach, come here, bud. I want to talk yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of his take on Superman or Batman or any of it. So no, yeah. no. people know that people know that I'm, I'm not a fan. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, we just got done having our love fest about creators and things. And I think that that's great, <laughs> but I do think we need to acknowledge that there's a, there's a role to be played by people telling creators. No, um, <laughs> that, that sometimes they are not the villains of the story. <laughs> well, Jeez. I think, I think specifically, well, you know, yes, you're correct. Uh, in, in the case of, Zack Snyder and and the DC stuff. I I think that they essentially said, "Oh, he's this vision and we're going to we're going to just give him carte blanche. He's going to be able to do whatever he wants." And then he did. And then they're like, "Oh shit. The fuck did we yeah. do?" Yeah. <laughs> who yeah. who did we give the keys to the car to? Yeah. Yeah. I I am much more optimistic about James Gunn being in charge. I am I, as well. I, yeah. I'm guardedly optimistic, yeah. but still optimistic. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I, I feel like he's already had his first fight, lost it, and then now uh, Warner Brothers just backed off. But they 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 uh, they said they weren't going to release his uh, Looney Tunes movie, the Acme movie. Yeah. Oh the yeah, coyote. the Coyote one. And uh, they said it's just we're going to shelve it. And. Um, that pissed off so many other directors that those directors started canceling meetings with the, with the WB and yeah. uh, with Warner brothers and said, well, we're not just going to, we're just not going to work with you. And yeah. so they reversed it now and they're allowing him to shop it somewhere else. They're not going to distribute it, but he's allowed to take his completed finished movie. That was a pet project of his. That he was very excited about. Uh, yeah. And he's now allowed to shop it around and see if he can get someone else to distribute it. And, and I think that that's funny because it's like again, uh, oh, we're gonna give we're gonna give this person the keys, mm-hmm. uh, and then we're gonna piss him off and and like not not let him get his pet project. I don't know. So yeah, yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, yeah, that would not be a piece of evidence in my not always a villain argument. There, yeah. I would not. That would not support my thesis. Yeah. <laughs> oh. You know what would support my my thesis? This is a terrible segue here. This is like easily the worst segue I've ever done. What would support my thesis is a pick of the week. (laughs) Picks of the week. All right. So, Patrick, I kind of want to put you on the hot seat because I want to see if you can talk about anything other than Blue Eye Samurai. I can't. I okay, cool. I totally so, so, it, but what's funny is that uh, I also mentioned this last week. Um, my pick for this week is uh, System Collapse by Martha Wells, which mm-hmm. is the new Murderbot Diaries book. Uh, I love Murderbot. I have turned lots of people onto Murderbot who I don't think otherwise would have gotten into Murderbot. And I just love this series. 
So when I saw that it was available for pre-order, I freaked out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I screenshotted it. I shared it with our patrons. Uh, trying to get some buzz going, and uh, you know, I mean, the Martha Wells it. evangelists were going on full steam that oh, day. God. Yeah, so so happy, <laughs> so happy. Uh, Murderbot's back. Uh, Sanctuary Moon is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, art is back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yes, uh, very excited for this. Uh, can't. I, I. I just want more. Yeah. I want more. I'm sorry. And and I get it. It's like these these books are short. Mm-hmm. Uh and they're short on on purpose. Uh I just want more. Just give me more. That's it. I well, you got more. you got this one right here. This I know. Right here. Yeah. I know. But and, I want more. And remember, she wrote them longer, it would take her take them longer to come out. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You can get yes. gorilla attacked by a brand new Murderbot book so much more easily and readily, <laughs> not even knowing it was coming, which also is, you know, the, again, we're kind of coming full circle here. That whole um, the creation of a fan base and all of that is 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 somewhere between Kismet and a miracle and, and also a lot of hard work as well that you can just release a book with like no real fanfare or build up to it and no real yeah. like hype. I mean, I, I was looking back when I saw that announcement hit, I started to look back through my inbox uh, for, for pitches from, from publicists to see like who, who yeah. reached out to me about like nobody. Like it was just like Tor was like, boom and just like walked <laughs> away and they're like, we got you a murder bot book here. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, the other one that kind of did the same thing, uh, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm going out on a, a very thick limb here thinking that Tracy has not read this at all. Uh, mm. but, um, the, uh, Cinder Spires book two, mm. uh, the Olympian affair from Jim Butcher. I, did not even know that they had greenlit a second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I adored the first book because mm-hmm. it's so different from anything else that he's ever written. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just really, really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted a second book and they dropped the second book and I didn't know that the second book was coming. And so I was like, holy crap, there's a second book. Uh, mm-hmm. So I also have that. That's on my to be read pile. Um, but I have to go back to the first one which the name is escaping me. Air, oh, no, wait. Era, era, Aeronauts Windless. Thank you. Aeronauts win, yes. Windless. Was the first, I want to go back to the first one and remember before I go back to right, the second right. one. But yeah, that's not, a, that's not necessarily a pick. That's like a side pick. But they, the they tagline for this pick is Jim Butcher gave me homework. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there was a, those two together, like the, the yeah. Murderbot and the Cinder Spires book two, surprised me and in a good way i was very happy yes, it's like yes. oh, good more things to read indeed indeed nothing so wrong Alex, with that unless you ask my family in which case they go space shit so no well i mean <laughs> yeah we've we've hey, can't you read john well. grisham yes one does <laughs> can <laughs> fall it can fall it no you go ahead how about you alex how about how about a pick from you well as you may or may not know, there is a brand new Godzilla coming from Japan. I Minus saw one. that. Monarch, is it? No, no, no. No, no. no. That's a different one. Un- that's Did- that's a TV series that oh, is okay. tied to the American kaiju. Yes. This okay. is the 
it's it's a complete new start for the Japanese Godzilla series. Mm-hmm. It's called Godzilla Minus One. Oh. And they're having yeah. some kind of like um, special advanced screening with extra stuff being shown and all that. And that's happening on mm-hmm. my daughter's birthday. Oh, nice. the siren's going to get her kaiju on. T- she doesn't know we have tickets. <laughs> so that's making me real happy. Oh, that's that like, is going to be. That's like the day after. That's like tomorrow from when this mm-hmm. airs. Oh, yeah, it'll yeah. Be, it'll be tomorrow night. So we're, that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the, See, the trailers look great. It's set, um, right after World War Two. And I'm just I'm really looking forward to it. And she and I, we watch Godzilla constantly. She loves that stuff. So this is going to be a big deal for her. And I think so it's the it's it's closer to the classic design of Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, versus the the monarch one that you're talking about, Tracy, which is I think the it's not the Matthew Broderick design, which was terrible. No, but it's, no. It's, no. It's, it's it's like the um, I think it's the Kong versus Godzilla. Design. Kong versus Godzilla, yeah. sort of. Yeah, big, yeah. big hips, tiny head. Yeah, yeah, they they yeah. just released a tr- uh, uh, a clip of the Monarch series uh, with um, John Goodman is in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we He's watched being... the first episode last night, and it was it was all right. I mean, I'm willing to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. It was the a, giant it was, spider, yeah, was... the giant spider, and I'm the sorry? giant the giant spider and the giant crab thing. Yeah, fighting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then there's some other bugs later on. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a lot of setup in the first episode, obviously. But yeah, okay. yeah. I have not met the siren before, but I feel sort of like I know her by proxy through through <laughs> social media and things. But I also sort of feel like I live with my own version of the siren because my twelve year old daughter Deirdre is also sort of like a, a force of nature embodied in human skin, um, <laughs> and she. So her thing, her chaos gremlin thing she does with her dad yours is kaiju um which is super cool her chaos gremlin thing that she's gotten into with her dad is uh professional wrestling specifically aew professional wrestling she kind of cut her teeth on wwe things and has sort of moved on now to the kind of storylines of aew and so they have tickets uh for Thanksgiving Eve, there is an event in Chicago because we live just outside of Chicago. So they they have tickets to see whatever that particular event is being called um, at the Wintrust Arena in Chicago uh, the day before Thanksgiving. And so she is just over the moon to go. I bet. Yeah, she's going to glut herself on everything that is that and then, you know, holiday. Um, I I grew up, you know, I I grew up in Tennessee and professional wrestling was – the a big deal it is the shakespeare of the people yes (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is we believed it Mm. oh yeah we we did not understand that it was a show we thought it was a serious athletic competition Mm -hmm. and that it just had really bad referees (laughs) (laughs) just can you imagine the training on these guys why are they never why are they never paying attention when they should? Why are there chairs under the ring all the time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't they exactly. check for those? Yeah, it's perfect. That, that reminds me. Actually, you should you should tell your daughter uh, that that she can, uh, if there are folding chairs, she can just grab one and slam mm-hmm. it against somebody's head. That's totally allowed. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> they actually have complete. They just have completely different rules. They just suspend. It's like yeah. it's like one of those the purge films, except you know. Yeah. Yeah. For the for the benefit <laughs> of the listeners, I'm actually making the swiping motion of the he chair. He is. He's like, very animated about it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Almost as if he's done it before. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It's funny that. Um, Oh, uh, the the guy who played Arrow, Stephen Amell, Amell, Amnell, uh, yes, has has the wrestling show. Apparently, SAG after strike has killed the wrestling show and it's been canceled by Stars, and he's oh. very very upset about it because he wasn't allowed to promote it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so the ratings took a dip. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh well, that sucks. Oh, the casualties of war. Yep. Um. So I have a the vibes of my pick completely different, um, although they are also Deirdre centered. So um, Deirdre, as longtime listeners know, or even short time listeners know, is pretty big into games. Um, and one of the things that she she gets really into as well is just playing two player games, um, just ones where she goes head to head with people. And we have lots of them that are sort of abstracts that involve like movements of of figures, a la chess or things like that, that she's really good at. She's really good with anything that involves spatial manipulation. Um, and so the other day we were home by ourselves. The guys were off doing something else. And I asked her if she wanted to play a two-player game, and she said, sure. I named a bunch of ones that were familiar to her, and then I named one that she didn't know. So we pulled it out and played it, and she just had a ball of a time. So this is not a new game. It's been around for a while. Um, It is the two-player version of Codenames, which is called Codenames Duet. Um, And this was the right pick for lots of reasons. One, we had two people. Um, But more importantly than that, it's a great pick for uh, one of the problems I think that Codenames as a game has for a lot of people is that when one side is giving clues to the other, the other side just kind of like sits there and doesn't have much to do. And so when one side is busy clue giving to their partner, you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs waiting for your turn. Because there is no opposing team here, there's always something for you to be doing, either giving or listening to clues. They also have a modality in it where if you want to, with essentially like quest mechanics, because the idea behind it is you are mutually spies for the same organization trying to give each other clues and that as you travel to different waypoints throughout the world you know prague and warsaw and you know so on you need to uh hit certain increasingly difficult thresholds for clues and circumstances involving them um which kind of creates like a legacy replayability, which is sort of interesting. Um, And because, of course, it's a two-player game, you can get it for cheap lots of places. Um, So it's available just about anywhere you can expect to find normal games, um, including places like Target and Walmart. So if you've got someone you care about who you'd like to do something with that won't take you more than about a half an hour... Uh, and won't burn your brain too badly. Codenames Duet is a good way to spend twenty bucks and a half an hour of your life with somebody you like. That's awesome. Uh, it just mm. dawned on me, by the way, as you were as you were mm. talking about this, that I now know the perfect game to play with your daughter and your husband the next time I'm around. In the next person. time we're in the same zip code, yeah. Um, it's called Road to Takado or Takaido. Oh, we have that. And yeah. There's there's no winner. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that would drive them insane. It would. Yeah. We have <laughs> that game and no it winner. doesn't get played much. <laughs> exactly. Because there's no winner. 
There is absolutely no fucking way. No, my absolutely out for blood better half and his spawn um, <laughs> would very much find that frustrating. So um, so if, if yeah. we're in the same zip code again, I'm going to be like, oh, this is my favorite game in the whole wide world. We have to yep. play this one. Only yep. this one. This is the one that we have to play because yep. it's my favorite. And I'm going to get mm -hmm. them to play it and drive them absolutely nuts. I I'm gonna co-sign that. So yeah, that's, we're gonna. That's a plan, sir. I think, and you should record this. So. Yeah, yeah. Have now that we for later. But wait, uh, I see what you did there, Alex. So, Alex, it's been a ball having you on. I'm so glad well, that we we got a chance to connect again. Well, thank you, thank you. So, Alex, if people want to find you and the cool stuff that you're producing above and beyond, give the people what they want. Where should they be looking for you? What are you going to be up to? Uh, I don't have anything on the books right now. I'm shopping something around with my agent. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I'll have some good news after the first of the year. Yeah. Um, you can find me online at alexbledsoe.com. I'm on um, Facebook. I'm on uh, threads because I gave up on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I'm on Instagram, all of which are under Alex Bledsoe or Alex Bledsoe Writer. Fantastic. It was awesome having you on, Alex. Yeah, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Tracy, it's good to see you again. Patrick, good to meet you. You too. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so this outro is going to be a long one. So buckle up, Robert. Before I get too far into that, I do want to remind you to go listen to Beyond the trope giles and michelle are sitting there right now watching the episode counter the little thing that says how many people have listened to the episode they're sitting there right now watching it looking at it waiting for that to roll up another number or seven or a thousand okay waiting for you to go listen and make that counter roll up I know you're all going to do it because if you don't, it kind of make me look bad. Uh, no one really wants that, okay? So go listen. Be on the trope. Now, do raw potatoes soak up the alcohol? The truth behind this common myth. Raw potatoes have long been used as a remedy for alcohol-induced nausea and headaches. But how exactly do raw potatoes soak up alcohol? It all comes down to the potato's high starch content, which acts as a natural absorbent for alcohol. Starch. Raw potatoes are made up of around 80% water and 20% starch. Starch is a complex carbohydrate made up of long chains of glucose molecules. When mixed with alcohol, the starch in the potato begins to break down and absorb the liquid. Surface area. The surface area of the potato also plays a role in its ability to soak up alcohol. When sliced or grated, the potato has a greater surface area, allowing for more contact with the alcohol. Time. The longer the potato is allowed to soak in alcohol, the more effective it will be in absorbing the liquid. This is due to the starch breaking down further and increasing the potato's absorbency. Scientifically speaking, the process of starch Absorbing alcohol is known as absorption. Absorption occurs when a solid mater material such as starch collects molecules from a liquid such as alcohol on its surface. If we look at the process on a molecular level, we can see that the long chains of glucose in starch contain hydroxyl groups. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which are attracted to the hydroxyl groups in alcohol molecules. 
molecules. This attraction causes the alcohol molecules to be absorbed onto the surface of the starch. The starch content and surface area of raw potatoes allow them to act as a natural absorbent for alcohol, the process of absorption. When the hydroxyl groups in the starch attract the hydroxyl groups in the alcohol is responsible for the potato's ability to soak up alcohol. However, the concept of raw potato absorbing alcohol is not entirely accurate. While raw potatoes can absorb some liquid, they do not absorb alcohol in significant quantities. Studies have shown that raw potatoes can only absorb about 0.04 to 0.08% of their weight in alcohol. This means that a single slice of potato can only absorb a minuscule amount of alcohol and would take many slices to make a noticeable difference in the strength of an alcoholic drink. Despite this, the belief that raw potatoes soak up alcohol persists, likely due to the visual effect of seeing the potato slice appear to swell in a drink. Additionally, the starchy texture of raw potatoes may alter the mouthfeel of the drink slightly, making it seem less strong to the drinker. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that raw potatoes aren't going to help you if you drink Malort, Todd. Thanks for listening. Go do the Patreon thing at patreon.com slash functional nerds. And have you ever tried to record one of these things with a dog in the room who's going crazy and just thinks that you're talking to them and therefore they're getting all excited and they're shaking their head and they're like making noises and stuff in the background? Because that happens, people. That happens. Oh, God, what are you licking? Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> When someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.